Welcome to Fraud Busting. I'm Tracy Brown, the Fraud Busting Body Language Expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion dollar business deals. It's time to dive in so you can beat the fraudsters at their own game and build your bottom line. Tim McGinnis visits Fraud Busting. He's the expert on, get this, socially engineered cyber enabled crimes and he fights fraud every day. We'll learn how in the 1980s, he helped introduce legislation that he now regrets and considers the root of all evil online. And he'll fill us in on how he was targeted by Al-Qaeda and then helped bust their fraud scheme. Enjoy. Tim, thank you so much for coming on Fraud Busting today. I'm, I'm, really, uh, I'm really honored that you're here. Thank you. Now, tell us a little bit about you, because I don't think any intro I could do would really do you justice. So what's the 10 cent version? And then we'll dive in deeper. All right. Well, um, my name is Dr. Tim McGinnis. I am the chairman and founder of an organization called SCARS, Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams. Now, this is where I spend about 50% of my time. Uh, having been an observer of online crime now for uh, the better part of 30 years. Uh, it'll be 30 years actually in January. Um, my background is I'm a hardcore technologist, software, hardware engineer. Um, I hold many degrees, a couple of PhDs, one of which is in archaeology and another one is in finance. Um, I'm, also, I'm also an anthropologist. Uh, can you hear me well? Oh yeah, I got you. Perfect. So um, over the years, I've been involved in a multitude of different technologies and projects as a corporate research engineer, developer, scientist, academic, etc. Um, I'm on the board of a few uh, universities as an advisor to business schools in cybersecurity and related fields, for example. In the work that we do in SCARS, what we are is we are a government-registered crime victims assistance and crime prevention nonprofit organization, incorporated and registered in the state of Florida as a nonprofit. And uh, we're going into our sixth year now. And our organization focuses on providing free services to online crime victims. We do research, we do advocacy, but our primary focus is in helping scam victims worldwide recover from the trauma of the experience that they received. Now, because there, there is a lot of trauma. I mean, with, with any crime, uh, there's, right. there's a lot of trauma, and especially because um, you're focused more on crimes of the heart, right? It's not just stealing your Amazon package off your doorstep, which happened, that not. actually happened to a friend of mine yesterday. So, so you guys right. are a, a, little bit, a little bit different. Tell me about that. Uh, we focus on something called socially engineered cyber-enabled crimes. Cyber-enabled crimes is a term that was developed by the United Nations uh, Office of Drugs and Crime to describe crimes where essentially it's a human to a human in a relationship of one nature or another using the internet and cyber mediums to enable these crimes, as opposed to pure cyber crimes, which are generally computer to computer, such as ransomware attacks, denial of service attacks, intrusions, breaches, 
all of those kinds of things. It may involve a human being, but we're focused on predominantly the one-to-one -one types of crimes. And that can be a phishing attack, even though they're using you know, a one-to-many approach. That's just to identify a target, and then it becomes a one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, it can be sextortion. It could be various kinds of extortion and blackmail scams. The IRS phone calls, thirty mm. phone calls. These are all essentially part and parcel of what we call the socially engineered context. Got it. So, what is the primary like? Because you know you have different categories of of crime that that people come to you with. What's the biggest one? Is it dating crime? Is it something else? Tell me about that. Well, dating crime is a misnomer. There, there really isn't any such thing per se, because dating implies the medium, i.e. a dating website. The reality is this is a relationship scam. Mm -hmm. It begins in a dating website or whether it begins on social media or whether it begins in an email, it's essentially the same crime. What we do focus on to a great extent is helping victims of romance scams. And the reason why we do that is few of these relationship scams touch as deeply, profoundly, and manipulate to the extent that these do. If you're talking about a lotto scam out of Jamaica, for example, you're in and you're out typically within a week. If you're talking about an IRS or a social security phone scam, you're in and out as soon as you've made the payment information. But in the case of a romance scam, these scams certainly go on for weeks, sometimes months. We've known cases where they went on for five years. Oh, yeah. A steady bleeding of money from that victim until they were virtually homeless. Now, why Why did you, out of all of the things that you could pick to do with, because you, you've been successful in business, why this? Were you touched by this? Was What's your interest in this? All right, well, there, there's two vectors that drew me into this. First off, casual observation when I was a senior executive at a company called TigerDirect.com, of which I was a co-founder back in the mid-80s. I observed when I was putting the company up onto America Online and CompuServe, this phenomenon that began to emerge in the AOL chat rooms, talking about these romantic-related scams that were occurring in AOL. Uh, but what really happened was um, when I put the company up onto the web in 94, 95, uh, we began to encounter a problem. Our attorneys were freaking out over the, over the fact that I was allowing customers to write product reviews and leave comments on the products that TigerDirect.com was selling. Um, so they prohibited it. So myself and, and many companies in the industry can, formed a consortium to lobby Congress to do something about this problem. It resulted in the creation of the Communications Decency Act, Section 230 of 1996, which gave immunity, blanket immunity to every publisher for user-generated content. It is fundamentally the root of all evil that exists on the web today because it allows everyone from Google to Facebook, et cetera, to turn a completely blind eye. In fact, they're required to turn a blind eye because if they too proactively screen, then they're going to end up incurring liability or negligence. 
So the net result is everybody turns a blind eye and all of the publishers out there essentially say, whatever happens, happened, it's not our fault, but we will create some terms and conditions so that when we choose, we can throw people out. But that's resulted in, according to the former president of Facebook, well over 50% of Facebook profiles being fake. Today. Oh, really? 50%, huh? So addition to that, in the year 2001, I had a unique experience where a scam attempt was made against me by an actual Al-Qaeda cell operating in Afghanistan and in the Netherlands. Okay, tell me about this. Tell me about this now. Al-Qaeda, um, what happened? I, I'm so curious. How did you figure out, for what? Well, tell me what happened, then I want to know how you figured out it was them. Okay, so this will take a couple of minutes to do okay. the setup of this particular story. But the long and the short of it was, uh, I was a prolific web publisher at that point in time and had a lot of different websites. And I was contacted by email by someone, a woman from Afghanistan, who had an interest in a website that I published on Middle Eastern archaeology. Okay. I am that. I have the hat, the gun, and the whip. And all I, well, that. I see you're, you're wearing the shirt there. You do have the Indiana Jones. Uh, no, this is just khakis. Or, I mean, just... <laughs> um, it's, it's Tuesday. It's an olive drab day. Mm, okay, got anyway, it. so the, the upshot was she expressed an interest in migrating to the United States. And of course, I was familiar with some of the horrors that were going on in Afghanistan under the Taliban at that point in time. She had two daughters and were afraid that they were going to be stoned at the halftime of a soccer game, which was in fact happening. So it progressed over the next couple of months to the point where I did the investigation necessary to find out what it would take to get her a residency as an investor here in the United States, okay. the amount of money, even talk to her by phone on a real Afghani phone number. Oh. Um, she indicated that she had wealth, that she had precious stones that she was going to send to Holland, which is the gem capital of the world, to be liquidated into cash. And from that, she would be able to do and get her investor's visa. So, this progressed from about March, April or so, more or less, into uh, late July, where the shipment arrived in, in, uh, in Holland. Unfortunately, the story went that it was sent to me and that I would have to remove it from customs in Holland. So far, no major red flags at this point in time. This was sounding very authentic based upon the information I'd received. Now, are you in the States at this point? Or Pardon me? Are, are you in the States at this point? Are you? Okay? Yes, I am. You are. I am in the you States. You some out of customs in Holland. Well, I had quite a bit of familiarity with, with the movement of goods through customs okay. in various countries, et cetera. So none of this surprised me. So what I asked for were the customs documents to, so I could confirm what was being said, see how the shipment was categorized what duties were being levied on it, because they were telling me there were a couple thousand dollars of duties fees or customs fees that I would have to pay. Okay. Said, not a problem per se, send me the documents so that I can verify and see if through my own channels and through another customs broker that I knew of in Holland, I might be able to get this reduced or waived. Anyway, they never sent me those documents. We're now into August, and I basically said, look, without the documents, I can't proceed. Even though I'm getting 
frantic calls from Afghanistan, please help, please help, please help. I basically said, look, call me when you get the documents. Until then, there's nothing I can do. Now, it hadn't cost me an actual cent yet. Okay. So, a couple of weeks go by. We're now into the 1st of September, 2001. Two weeks or, or 11 days later, we have 9-11 happen. And I, like everybody else on the planet, am in total shock because I'm watching this in real time because I just sat down at the breakfast table, had CNN on, and boom, the first plane hit. They rush to the roof and start broadcasting. And I see the second plane hit and hear the course of the story over the rest of the day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that day. Because I'm in shock. Crazy, yeah. Yes. So nothing really happens. A couple of days later, the realization slap forehead moment happens when I realize when they start talking about who the terrorists were, their connection with Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Afghanistan. Uh And I to myself, oh my God, I have been colluding with Afghanis for the last six months. Oh, I, I call the FBI tell them the whole story, gather up copies of every document, meet with an FBI agent the following day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I give him all of the information and nothing happens. So I call back. So this was September. I call back at the end of October and they tell me that there was no such FBI agent in their organization. But I called you and you guys had this guy call me and now nothing. So I don't quite know what's going on, but I don't have anywhere else to go. So we're now into November. Now, hang on, let's let's back up a minute. So you called, like, did you just look up in the phone book? Because we still had phone books back then. Um, Yeah, I called the local, the Tampa office of the FBI directly. And uh, And they took my information and said they would have an agent call me back. He called me back within about an hour. But you said they didn't call you back. No, he called me back. But when I called them about a month later, they said there was no such agent. The guy that I actually met with physically. So so did they... Okay, explain. I want to know all about that, but keep going because I know you're going to get... Okay, right. Not much more to this. So um, first week or so, excuse me, second week or so of November, more or less... um, being an old fart, time scales slip. But um, I call a friend of mine in Holland that was a business associate and ask him uh, if he could put me in touch with the equivalent agency in the Dutch government. Because I was actually talking to people in Amsterdam and Rotterdam in Holland. So I knew that these guys were there and I didn't know what their real purpose was, et cetera. But I wanted to communicate this information to the Dutch government. He gives me the name or the phone number of the agency, I call them the next morning at an earlier time of day, and I speak with one of their agents, give him all of the information. Nothing happens. So go through Christmas. I'm not hearing anything from anybody, except on or about the 23rd of December, I see a news article online, which I can no longer locate, that talked about 12 Al-Qaeda operatives in a cell in Holland, having been arrested by the Dutch government, plotting the assassination of the Dutch queen 
when she would deliver her Christmas message in the square in Amsterdam. Hmm. So I don't know whether it's the same guys or a coincidence. Then in January, towards late January, I get a call from another Dutch agency. And the first thing out of the guy's mouth is, hi, my name is such and such. I'm with this agency. This call never took place. However, you've done a service for our country, and I wanted to personally call and thank you. I got the sense that he was a senior official in whatever that agency was, which was their equivalent of their CIA, mm-hmm. pre the European Union. We're talking 2002 now. So the result was he explained to me that, yes, they had been able to, oper- they had been able to arrest an al-Qaeda cell operating in Holland with the intent to assassinate the Dutch queen based upon the information that I gave them. And he went on to explain that they were aware of this kind of activity because Al-Qaeda received about 40% of its revenue from various forms of cyber and other crimes of this nature, confidence scams, uh, advanced fee fraud, which is what this was, and other forms of scams that they were engaged in. So that informed me to the point where I made a decision, I need to look much more closely at this and I need to use some of my skills to help educate the public more about the dangers of these activities. So for about the next 10 years, I operated a website through one of my companies um, in about, oh, I don't know, 2010 more or less. Um, Actually, no, it was 2013. I put a a full-time employee on to um, be able to work with people that were communicating through the website. Our primary focus was to catalog the way scammers were communicating, share stolen photos, et cetera. Really did not have a good grasp of the nature of the crimes, the mechanisms, the organizations, or the psychology behind it because I was not fully engaged because I was running my various businesses, including being an employee of of Tiger Direct still. Now, I have a question, though. Did you ever figure out what happened with the FBI when you called them? Uh, To this day, I've never spoken with the agent that I spoke to. Don't know who he really was, what agency he really was. Poof, up in smoke. Literally a spook. But For whatever reason, he collected my information. I gave him copies of every email, phone numbers, everything. Mm -hmm. Because my primary concern was not to have men in black show up at my door and arrest me in the middle of the night. Uh So, in effect, these two elements, my involvement in the creation of the Communication Decency Act, my involvement in this one particular scam, and the realization that events like 9-11 were partially funded by these activities had a profound impact on me. I didn't quite know where I was going or what I was going to do until another trigger event happened. And this happened in the fall of 2014. We were contacted by a woman who was working as a domestic servant in Hong Kong who was from Indonesia. She was one of the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of foreign domestic workers that work everywhere from Europe, the United States, throughout the Middle East, et cetera. Many are from the Philippines, from Indonesia, Asian countries, but also from Latin America. Um, 
this woman had been romance scammed. She had borrowed 40,000 US dollars on the street in Hong Kong from triads, from organized criminals, oh. and was petrified because she just discovered that it was a scam and she had no idea how she was going to make this money back. She earned $500 a month. Never wow. in life would she earn enough money to pay this loan off. Mm-hmm. But she did it anyway. Like she just wasn't thinking going into it or her, her heart was. That's not the way these scams work. It isn't about thinking. It isn't about heart. It's right. about everybody can be scammed. Mm-hmm. Manipulation works on everyone unless you develop behaviors. Unfortunately, a couple of months later, uh, we discovered that she had committed suicide because she couldn't face the reality of her situation. Mm. Now, I had already made the decision to incorporate SCARS at that point in time and had done it, but this really drove home the fact that nobody anywhere was addressing the real issues that victims face when they're confronted with these with these cyber crimes. Mm. So then... What are you doing now? Let's let's fast forward to today. If someone comes to you and they've been a victim in any kind of way of these person-to-person relationship scams, what, what's the first thing that you do for folks? Well, first and foremost, we do what we can to educate the public to avoid them. But avoidance education generally fails because nobody believes it will happen to them until it actually does. Right. The reality is that there's almost 30 million romance scam victims in the world. This year alone, there will be an additional million romance scam victims. Oh, wow. It's whatever else is going on. Online scams represent one of the largest industries in the world. It's $3.4 trillion estimated for 2019. Yeah, you were telling me that. That's bigger than what, Germany or something along those lines? It's the third largest economy in the world behind the United States and China. Wow. And it will grow to six trillion estimated by the end of next year. Mm-hmm. Now, that may not happen because nobody was planning on 2020. Right. Yeah, this year's been but nevertheless, yeah. it's it's multi-trillion dollars even this year. So the reality is that. First and foremost, it is a recognition of the real nature of these crimes. And we've been beating that horn steadily with government. We are a formal partner for victims assistance with the Department of Homeland Security through their cyber crimes and infrastructure security agency. And we're registered with the DOJ Office of Victims of Crime, as well as with other entities around the world. We have partner organizations in 60 countries. Um, When a victim comes to us, we've made a considerable effort to professionalize these services to really understand the trauma that the victim is going through and what they need in order to be able to move forward. Essentially, there's several things going on here. When a victim discovers a scam, it's very much like losing a loved one, an instant death. Oh, yeah. Go through grief, shock, that experience. So you're going to go through the full grief cycle. Additionally, the manipulation that takes place during the scam is designed to continue to flood the victim's brain with with hormones, uh, endorphins, dopamine, serotonin, etc. So there is a there is a physical addiction aspect that also takes place. 
the net result is that our job is to help them get through the stages so that they can emotionally recover. And that may include referrals to appropriate professionals, whether that be a trauma therapist or a counselor, attorneys, law enforcement, financial professionals, etc. We provide them with the path, very much like Alcoholics Anonymous, mm. have a recovery program that's based on, the, on a peer-to-peer support group model, moderated by um, individuals trained to be able to do that. That is essentially our model. We maintain support groups worldwide, online, and in some cases physical, uh, such as in Indonesia, et cetera, where, where phone support, physical meetings, et cetera. We've done physical meetings here in the United States as well. So our focus is primarily to help the victim disengage from the, the experience of the scam, put it in proper context and accept that they are a victim of a scam, that they're not stupid, they didn't overlook anything, they were expertly manipulated. And to be able to accept these facts so that they can forgive themselves and move forward. Now, let's talk about that. When you say expertly manipulated, because my thought is that it's some guy in a coffee shop in Nigeria, right? No, or at, that might be 20 years ago. That what, what is the profile today. of these guys, and I'm, I'm sure women now? What's the. So there are many different levels uh, of scammers operating. So we're just going to take, for example, the, the West African model. We'll ignore the Chinese and the Iranian and the Russian models for a moment. Okay. Uh, also ignore the Philippine model. Let's talk specifically about West Africa. So there are individual, what we call thugs, that are doing their scamming and they're predominantly in small gangs, small groups. Mm-hmm. Groups may be anywhere from, from three to 20. In Ghana, for example, whole, fam- whole families will sit around the house where they've got good Wi-Fi and engage in scamming. The parents, the adult children, the younger children, the siblings, aunts, uncles, they're all scamming together, male and female. But in Nigeria, this is a corporate process. So the smaller gangs may be as much as 100, but they can also be corporations that own office buildings that look to the outside world like outsourcing centers, which we in the West did a great job of training in the early 2000s. So the same is true in India, which essentially use the same model as West Africa. These are call centers full of scammers. They have supervisors, they have managers, they have training departments, they have benefits and HR departments. Oh, man. So this is corporate. These, some of these organizations are tens of billions of dollars in annual revenue. In the last 20 months, there have been four major kingpins that have been arrested. Each of them had more than a billion dollars in cash in their accounts. The most notable was Hush Puppy, who was living a lavish lifestyle in his $100 million home in Dubai and was extradited to the United States uh, to go on trial. I believe it was Chicago. Um, So these are people who are netting so much money that literally they have private jets that leave Nigeria every single day transporting cash 
to their money laundering venues like Malaysia or Indonesia, or Vietnam or Cambodia, where they launder it through the local banking systems, etc. This, that's how multi-trillion dollars worth of economic activity are taken care of. It's not all done on Bitcoin. Additionally, scammers, when they can't get money out of a victim anymore, they will convert them to a money mule to facilitate the transfer of money and assets. So victims will send the money to a mule, an unsuspecting person who thinks they're helping out their lover who is an oil engineer working in Syria or a soldier on a peacekeeping mission in Zimbabwe or wherever it happens to be. Um, unfortunately, the FBI arrested about 800 such mules last year in 2019, mm -hmm. and Europol arranged for the arrest of about 600 in Europe. Money mules are now at the root of the problem because they are the facilitators of the money transfer. But it's also, thank you, Facebook, Every money transfer system on the planet is also used substantially for criminal activities. So the net result is that these criminal activities are extraordinarily professional and corporate-like. Huh. Wow. I, I was on the, the old coffee shop model, so I'm glad you updated me. That hasn't existed for, for almost a, a decade and a half. Huh. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm that's not to say that's not to say that individual scammers don't go into cyber cafes, but the cyber cafes are all monitored by the governments now. So if somebody is an idiot enough to scam in a cyber cafe, they're going to get busted. Now, but the government's is the government in on this or not? Because no. no. I, I talked to a fellow who was a, a counterfeiting expert and he um, I did a podcast with him. I can't remember his name right now. It was one of the first ones I did. And he, he thought the government overlooked a lot of that because it was such good news for their GDP. So what's, yes, what's your there's a difference on that? between overlooking it and being in on it. So okay. If, all right. All right. You take the country of Ghana. They make more for their GDP in scamming than they do from foreign aid. Mm -hmm. Their actual universities, like the Technical University of Kumasi, that's overrun by scammers where the students are co-opted into belonging to the organization that effectively runs it. Um, we estimate that three of the Ghanaian, Ghanaian universities are essentially schools of scam. Now in Nigeria, um, the Economic and Financial Crimes Commission is ethically very stable, though I am surprised to say that their own director was arrested this year for corruption Okay, well, there you go. But in his case, it had more to do with, with, I think it was political pressure because he wasn't sharing the money that he was receiving with other government agencies. Mm. So they decided to find a way to do that. Now, maybe I'm wrong. And, and we, in fact, have a partner in Nigeria now. So we hope to improve our closeness with their government quite substantially. But Nigeria seriously recognizes the problem in the fact that they've become a poster child for scamming in the world. Nigeria equals scammers. Yeah, that's what it is in my mind, like for sure. But remember, Nigeria is one of the largest countries, if not the largest country in Africa, with more than 100 million population. Scamming is a very, very small part of the economic activity. However, 
scammers scam Nigerians just as much as they scam anybody else outside the planet. I've heard that. That is crazy. And I know you, you we have a quick story. I know you have a story on on uh, on one of those. And I don't think we have time to get into it right now, but I think we may have you sure. back to tell that because I think it's ongoing. Um, so, okay. So, Tim, how can people get a hold of you? You're such a wealth of information. Um, is it, is it go to call you? What's, what's the plan? Okay. We don't offer telephone support at this point in time because our organization doesn't have the funding to maintain 24 hour call support. Uh, that includes liability insurance, all the rest of it that goes with it. But you can reach us through againstscams.org is our primary website. Our encyclopedia of scams is called romancescamsnow.com. We also built the first global cybercrime reporting portal at anyscam.com. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, where we collect scam reports in real time and distribute them out to our re feed recipients around the world instantaneously. Uh, we receive about 25,000 reports a month, more than the FBI gets. Oh, man. Wow. Well but the, the biggest problem with, with scams is primarily the question of reporting, because the government has no idea anywhere in the world how large a problem this is. In the United States, the FBI estimates that it's around 3 to 5% of victims will report this. Unfortunately, they can't guess. They have to, they have to calculate the actual number reported. So you take the government reports and multiply them by anywhere from 20 to 50, and you'll come up with the right numbers. Wow. Well, you got your work cut out for you there at SCAR. Indeed. And thank you for doing what you do. I hope I never had to use your services, uh, but I know uh, we're going to be staying in touch and promoting each other a little bit here because um, that's what we do is, is help each other out. And I know you help a ton of people. So Tim, any part uh, a little word? over a little over five million in five years. Oh, I love it. I thanks for doing what you do and, and being one of the good guys. Any parting words for people? Um just to say that if you are a victim, visit our websites, read the three steps for a new scam victim, which will tell you how to exit the scam and your immediate steps to take in your first few weeks to get you on the path to get over this experience and to recover. And to remember, these are serious traumas, as serious as a soldier coming back from Iraq or, or Afghanistan. Victims suffer from PTSD, regardless of what the crime type is. Remember, online crime is real crime, regardless of what any friend or family member says, this is serious and you've been seriously afflicted. Remember, we are a nonprofit, so uh, we survive based upon the supporters of our organization, and every donation is greatly appreciated. Well, good deal, Tim. Thank you so much for coming on Frog Busting. Thank you so much, Tracy, for having me. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate, and review it. I'll see you next time.